And now to introductions. Today, we present the 2022 Florence Uddelson Memorial Lectureship. This lectureship was established in 2002 by Helene and George Adelson to honor the life and memory of George's mother, Florence Wolf Edelson, who was a Portland native, and her husband, Dr. Jesse Edelson, was a St. Vincent physician for many years. We are so grateful for their ongoing support of this lectureship. And now to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Jacqueline Alban, Associate Professor in the Departments of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, where she specializes in internal medicine, pediatrics, lifestyle medicine, and culinary medicine. Dr. Alban treats patients of all ages at the UT Southwestern Combined Internal Medicine and Pediatrics Clinic, and she also serves as the founding Associate Program Director for the Combined Internal Medicine Pediatrics Residency Program. Dr. Alban earned her medical degree at George Washington University School of Medicine and completed residency in internal medicine and pediatrics at Baylor College of Medicine, where she served as chief resident of pediatrics. Dr. Alban launched UT Southwestern's culinary medicine program and serves as the director of the program's education, research, clinical, and equity missions. She serves also on the National Advisory Board for the Certified Culinary Medicine Specialist Program and studies the impact of hands-on culinary medicine classes in both medical education and patient care settings. Dr. Alban is passionate about nutrition, lifestyle, and environmental influences on health, and she seeks to drive positive change at a population level. She believes food as medicine offers a unique opportunity to integrate the clinical, educational, and research aspects of this work through the training of future care professionals, delivery of innovative patient support and lifestyle behavior change, and high quality research that uplifts the health of communities. Dr. Alban, we are so delighted to have you join us today and I will turn it over to you. Okay, good morning, everyone. You can hear me okay? We're all set, okay. Perfect. So if we were all in a room together, I would actually ask for a show of hands about who's actually heard of culinary medicine or what, what it might mean to you when I say those words. But hopefully by the end, if you're not sure what this means, you have a better understanding and also feel interested and passionate about learning more. So I don't have any traditional disclosures, but I do always like to contextualize that that what we share with one another as physicians is coming in the context of our personal experiences. And I'm a primary care physician. I teach residents and students and fellows. I've always been passionate about taking care of those around me, but I really just got into culinary and lifestyle medicine about 10 years ago. I'm a mom. I'm really kind of just an ordinary cook, nothing special. My husband's the better cook at my house. I love gardening and I believe that we are missing a, an absolutely powerful way to help our patients and communities heal through food and nutrition. And that's really what's driven me into this space professionally. So today we're gonna spend just a little bit of time summarizing some of the high level data around how much of an impact food has on disease. 
And then I'm going to take you down the pathway of thinking about how does this fit with our education as clinicians? And then what is being done in the realm of culinary and lifestyle medicine that tries to address this? And then we'll spend the last part of our time together talking about what, what does this look like in education, patient care? How are, how are some of the research opportunities emerging? And hopefully it'll get your wheels turning about how you might try to think about applying this to some of your spaces, both personally and professionally. So one of the take home messages from today is that a poor diet, a suboptimal dietary pattern is the number one risk factor for death in the United States. And so the U.S. Burden of Disease Collaborators actually takes data and looks at what are the top reversible risk factors that we face as a society, and diets surpassed smoking in the most recent iteration of this report. And if you look actually down the left-hand side, what besides tobacco as the second, what are these other big contributors? High blood pressure, high BMI, high blood sugar, high cholesterol, all of these are domains where what we eat has a huge impact. The colors you see on the bars that show the magnitude of deaths is almost entirely attributable to cardiovascular disease, which is not surprising. That's your blue color in the middle here. The purple reflects diabetes specifically, and the lighter blue represents cancer. So those are going to be the biggest drivers of death because they're the top causes for death in the U.S. is cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer. So this is not just a unique problem to the U.S. This is global, and the Global Burden of Disease collaborators actually dove into the specific food categories that are driving death and disability. So the colorful thin bars on the left we're not going to focus on, but that's looking at country income level. And your summative statement there is that all countries, regardless of income level, have this problem. On the right, again, we're looking at which diseases are driving this cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, once again. So now I want you to focus on the green box that I added to this graphic. So we have boxed the foods that are driving early death. And other than the one at the very top, which is too much sodium, I want you to look for a moment and see if you can come to a conclusion about the pattern that we have here. We're talking about not enough whole grains, fruits, nuts and seeds, vegetables, etc. So what is driving death and disease isn't all the foods that we tend to kind of wrist slap ourselves and our patients about. It's the good things, the nourishing things that are missing in our dietary patterns. So I see that as really good news because we can reframe the narrative around how do we get the good things back into our dietary pattern. So this is not just a problem of morbidity and mortality, it's a problem of expense. And you probably don't need me to tell you that we're struggling to afford our healthcare system. It's only getting worse. And the top 10 most expensive chronic disease conditions, I've highlighted in purple the ones that can be directly impacted in some way with diet, whether it's in prevention or as an adjunct to treatment. So there's a huge opportunity here for us to reduce costs through dietary intervention. So why isn't that something that we're aggressively doing? Why isn't every insurance company, every hospital system focused on this? There's a lot of complex reasons and a lot of them unfortunately have to do with the financial status of things. So I do want to just very briefly mention that we have to think about who pays for healthcare when we think about how we're trying to change healthcare, especially when we're introducing innovation. So this piece, which is a little bit older, it was in 2008 in JAMA, 
they talk about what what they refer to as the myth of shared responsibility. Some of us don't think deeply about who's paying for healthcare, but really it's it's us. It's each of us as individuals. It's our families. And when we think about employer sponsored insurance, people often assume that means that it, our employers are actually funding part of our healthcare. But really, it's just reduced wages and higher costs for us as individuals and families. The same is true when we think about government-sponsored insurance. They, they do that by taxes. Even at the county level, our county health system is funding our care for the underserved population from taxes and through borrowing. So at the end of the day, every single member of society is paying for healthcare. And so failure to understand this, I think helps us, or it blocks us from thinking creatively about how we might reform healthcare, how we might reform care delivery in a way that reduces costs for everyone in society. So now I'm gonna back it up to food. And most people actually, the ones who are honest at least, tell me that they feel nervous coming to talks that relate to nutrition and health, that they're gonna feel guilty about dietary choices or that I'm somehow gonna tell everyone to stop eating cake. And I, I get a kick out of that, but I also think that that's reflective of one of the problems in public health messaging around diet change as a country. So we've focused entirely too much on telling people what not to eat instead of helping them find ways to get nourishing, delicious food into the diet. So I'm here because I love food. I hope you do too. Some people kind of eat to live and other people live to eat. So we all have different relationships to food, but foundational is our culture, gathering with other people, coming together and, and just slowing down, spending time and nourishing our bodies for the next thing that we have to do. So I hope we can center ourselves around that and that there's room in our diets for all of the things that you see pictured here. So how do our patients think about these issues? So I, I snapped this photo in the grocery store aisle at a local store. Actually, it was the, uh, just before the pandemic. And I was reflecting, no wonder people are confused. So I was first drawn to the one in the bottom in the center that says what doctors don't tell you. And I'm thinking, well, I would like to know what I'm not telling people. And then you move over to the right and this, this magazine has decided to focus on a plant forward dietary pattern. Let's talk about plant-based eating. And then up in the center, quite different from plant-based eating, is the same magazine talking about both paleo and keto dietary patterns. And you could see how a patient might look at all this and say, you know what, I'm just, I'm gonna get the one with the pie because that looks good and I'm totally confused about what I'm supposed to eat to be healthy. So I want you to internalize that people want information about food. You probably want to know how you can best support your family's health if they don't get it from reliable evidence-based sources, they're going to get it from the magazines at the grocery store, from social media and other media sources. So we as the healthcare system, healthcare teams, and also our own presence in public, whether that's on social media or even the conversations we have, we have to become evidence-based sources. And we'll come back to why we aren't necessarily the best sources because of our training, but I think the onus is on us to change that and to ensure that we can be a resource for people knowing how to drive better health through their diet. 
So fortunately, some of our societies and guidelines are beginning to catch up to the role that lifestyle plays, but I want you to just glance at this. I added the blue arrows to draw your attention to emphasis on lifestyle for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. This is American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology's recent update in 2019. So if you look at the pediatric population, which is half of the population I treat, they're recommending lifestyle primarily to reduce risk of cardiovascular disease. And then the same is true in the second category, ages 20 through 39. But then once we start moving into higher risk categories, you see lifestyle not really getting mentioned anymore. And now the focus is on medication. And as a conventionally trained physician, I absolutely prescribe statins and all the other medications that have strong evidence base, but we have to pair it with the lifestyle behaviors and recognize that the medications alone often are not going to be sufficient to drive down disease risk as, as our rising prevalence of chronic disease has proven. So what is the dietary pattern that's being recommended in these guidelines? We're going to come back to the same dietary pattern in a moment, but it's straightforward. It's vegetables, fruits, legumes, which is our bean, lentil, pea family, nuts, whole grains, and fish. So this is really something that the media has made very complex. I like the words of food journalist Michael Pollan, who calls it nutritionism, that we've basically convinced everyone this is so complicated that we need multiple experts to guide us and what to possibly eat for good health. When the reality is it's basically the same principles for everyone that can be applied in a culturally relevant, practical way to each family or individual's preferences. So hopefully you, you can agree with me by the end of the morning that it's not as complicated as we think it is. And we have to give that message to patients. Now, not being complicated, complicated doesn't mean people don't need a significant amount of support to go against what has become culturally normative in the standard American diet particularly. And then really important, this is not mutually exclusive with delicious pleasurable food. In fact, we have to elevate the narrative of how important tasting good. It's not nutrition until, it, until we eat it, and if it doesn't taste good, we don't want to eat it. And then the last thing here I think is important to emphasize because many people believe I can't eat well, it's too expensive. And I was actually on a call with some medical students just yesterday. They were starting one of my virtual nutrition electives, which is designed for fourth year students. And we were each sharing something that we enjoy cooking. And this student who I hadn't met before said, well, actually, I've started cooking a lot more because I can't afford to eat out anymore with the increased cost of food. And I was so excited to hear that because it is very true that if we empower people to make nourishing, accessible food at home, it's typically going to be a cost savings. It is still an investment of time and typically habit change, but it's something that's important that we not continue assuming that all nourishing food has to be expensive. So I don't want to get caught up in the semantics of dietary pattern, and I am not a dogmatist about what we should eat. But in general, eating should be something that we do communally as often as possible. There's incredible data behind how that supports health in a variety of domains. 
We should be trying to eat food that is fresh and or frozen because most frozen fruits and vegetables are just as nourishing as fresh. And then we should be doing this in a way that, that covers the rainbow across several days at a time. So we wanna eat all of the plant foods that bring color because they each represent a different phytochemical or phytonutrient family. So one evidence-based dietary pattern that you probably hear a lot and see a lot is Mediterranean style. This does not just mean food from Europe and the Middle East who have traditional Mediterranean diet. This is a pattern of eating that can apply to any culture or program. And in fact, the research is clear that it doesn't even matter which specific application culturally, that the core nutrients are there across a variety of applications. And if we can get people to follow the core tenants, which are here, they're going to see health improvement. So vegetables and fruits, whichever ones are in season or available frozen or, or even canned as an improvement for many of our patients, daily nuts and seeds, whole grains, herbs and spices are really encouraged. We wanna celebrate spices and the different value and taste they bring to food, both, both for improving the taste of food, but also for adding a lot of antioxidant benefit. We want to focus on the ratio of saturated to unsaturated fat. So it's not an elimination of saturated fat, it's keeping saturated fat to about a third or less of our total fat intake. And then most unsaturated fat sources, things like avocado, nuts, olive oil, and some other oils. And then encouraging legumes at least twice a week for legumes. Both, most Mediterranean research has fish about twice a week, and there doesn't actually appear to be much benefit increasing it beyond that. And again, this dietary pattern doesn't eliminate animal foods, it's just plant forward and teaches us to think about animal foods as maybe more of a condiment or a flavoring agent than the main course. I could put 15 slides up like this one with multiple studies that have looked at this dietary pattern, which is why we tend to talk about it the most because it is the most heavily researched. Consistently, there's shown to be increases in cognitive performance, memory longevity, and reduces in some of our top killers that we talked about earlier, heart disease, cancer, also seems to improve memory. There's an increasing amount of evidence in specific application of the dietary pattern through what's called the MIND diet, and more data will be get, getting published about that soon. And, and then also increasing data around the role of food and mental health. Fortunately, when we improve dietary pattern, we reduce all the causes of early death. And I think that's good news because it is a one size fits all, even though it can be applied in many different ways, diet helps every disease pattern. I like this graphic, which Darush Mozafarian published in circulation about six years ago, because the strength of the evidence determined where the different foods are placed on the graphic. So the things you see in blue are ones where we have strong evidence for these foods being part of a dietary pattern and having benefit. The ones at the bottom, things that won't surprise you, like refined grains, processed meats, industrial trans fat is thankfully eliminated from our diet mostly, but we know that those foods are harmful. We wanna reduce them. But back to what I told you early in this conversation today is let's emphasize how people can get more of the things that they're probably missing in their diet. Because remember that global study showed us it's the missing stuff that's driving most disease. And then the other take home from this slide is maybe we shouldn't die on the hill of eggs and butter 
and having some unprocessed meat or not in the diet because the evidence is not as strong in the center area. So let's focus on the things that we all agree on and stay away from dogmatism about diet because we really lose a lot of our patients when we get dogmatic and we aren't applying it to their unique values and dietary preferences. So this is something I feel strongly about, that we need to begin to see diet as a major driver of chronic disease and also a key therapeutic target. So the common response I get from many people is, I don't have time to talk about diet. And I, I feel you, I'm a primary care physician. And so we have to be really intentional and thoughtful about ways that we can weave this into our patient's exposure. But I also wanna leave you with the question of, do you have time not to talk about diet based on what we're sharing today? So we're going to take just a little bit of a diversion, which I think is core to this topic, which is understanding where our patients eat. If we don't meet our patients where they eat, the advice that we provide to them can be completely useless. So we each have to ask ourselves, what, what does community mean? What is your community? Is it the people with whom you spend time that go beyond your family to the people that you cross paths with? Is it knowing a lot about the people that you take care of medically is it knowing where people buy their food access their food i would also think that it has a lot to do with the built environment understanding how people live their lives and what access or resources they have to live a healthy life and so we each have to ask what do we need to understand about our community in order to have the impact that we want to have so for me this is dallas and you are seeing life expectancy color-coded by zip code. And this was released at a state level thanks to the work of my colleague Sandy Pruitt, who's in our School of Public Health. And basically they released by gender and ethnicity what life expectancy looks like in zip codes. The gray zip codes didn't have enough data, but the blue zip codes, and we're actually going to focus on the zip code that is dark blue, which is the highest life expectancy in the Dallas area. And this is very close to the medical center, just north of us. And then just south of us, you see the, the dark reddish orange, which is, which is about 10 miles south of where the blue is. If you take a white man in the dark blue zip code and compare life expectancy to a white man in the orange zip code, there is a 26 year difference, which is staggering. And there are obviously many variables that go into to play in life expectancy, but one of them is definitely access to nourishing food. And that is the torch that I have chosen to, to carry as something that I believe I can make an impact on in my own community. And so now if we take a look at the Dallas map for understanding food deserts, the bright green is not good in this case. The bright green is a low income, low access area. And it's particularly true for people that lack transportation. They have even harder time getting to places to buy nourishing food. And if we look at the Dallas area, it's overlaid in a, in a way that has a pattern that's meaningful. So the areas of blue are the top center of this uh, map on the right, the ones that were the blue zip codes. You see University Park, Highland Park. And then the areas of green cover almost all of the orange and yellow 
lower life expectancy areas. Just one association, but it's an important one. And I think we each have to understand the communities that we live in. And then just one more slide about Dallas specifically. I also understand as a physician here that we are in the bottom percentile nationally for food insecurity and that one in five children in North Texas is food insecure. So I should be screening for this. And we have to understand the role of screening about food access and, and the ability to access not just calories, but nourishing food is something that all of us have to be considering when we're talking to patients across the socioeconomic spectrum. This is just the same map that is from ers.usda.gov of your state and thinking about where are the food deserts. I, I imagine some of these are rural areas, but if you maybe want to play with this map, zoom in and understand how different patients coming from different areas to seek care at your medical center might be facing food access and resource challenges, because that is how we can best support them is sometimes just ensuring access. So this is again, something that's being paid more attention to nationally. This is from the same circulation guidelines for AHA that I showed you earlier. And they have this graphic that draws attention to how vital all of these things, and I, I boxed in green, the ones that I think are really important for us to understand in a food conversation, health literacy, the psychosocial stressors, which many of our patients have had a huge increase in stressors over the past few years, how people feel about their body size. We have to be sure that we do no harm in our conversations. And, and unfortunately, we do a lot of harm sometimes with what we say. And then knowing the built environment of the neighborhood and other things that impair people's ability to be successful with their health. Also, knowing your community organizations, Crossroads is one of the most amazing organizations in my area that supports patient food access. So you want to know what your resources are. You maybe even just use it to make a smart phrase in your EMR where you can immediately support people with practical information like here's a phone number to call. Here are some community resources that we can help you get connected to. So when you're talking to patients about this, so make sure you're screening for food insecurity and don't make assumptions about, about who's food insecure. The pandemic is a great way to normalize that everyone has struggled with access to nourishing food at some point. Ask about people's relationship to food because if there's a history of disordered eating, you're gonna frame the conversation differently. It's vital that we get specific and practical, that we don't make generalizations about, well, let's just eat more vegetables. No, let's actually talk about where they prepare food, when they prepare food, when they eat out, and pick one or two small areas that you can coach your patient to work on. And then thinking about resources and supporting progress. We have to ensure that we don't let perfect or some unrealistic ideal be the enemy of better, because really better is what we're going for for ourselves and for our patients. Okay, now we're going to pivot a little bit. We're going to talk about the importance of nutrition education and what I really define as practical nutrition and education. So we're not talking about vitamin D biochemistry. We're talking about how to talk with our patients in everyday context. So when we know that the suboptimal diet, as I showed you on the very first slide, is our top risk factor for chronic disease, now we also understand that the pandemic showed us metabolic health is a risk factor for communicable disease severity as well. And then we know that our food insecure communities really bore the burden of the pandemic and also bear a greater burden of chronic disease. We need targeted preparation for how to think about this, how to understand the communities crossover and how we can best drive population health change wherever we are. So 
How is this going for us? In 1985, the National Research Council actually Put out a huge report that said this matters and this was after the 60s and 70s when everyone really began to understand food's role in heart disease and they recommended 25 to 30 hours so kelly adams and her colleagues have been tracking this in the literature every five years or so and unfortunately nutrition education is declining and over two-thirds of medical schools fail to even come close and for the ones that are potentially meeting this recommendation in number of hours no one can really report what they're teaching in a consistent way. So it's heterogeneous and it may or may not actually be helpful. However, medical students want this and you're seeing more and more information about the intersection of cooking and nutrition education. And I liked the quote from this fourth year medical student from University of Michigan that said, you know, students often learn how to talk to patients about behavior, lifestyle behaviors like alcohol, smoking. But when we talk about nutrition or weight, we felt paralyzed before, in this case, taking a culinary medicine class. And so I think that is something that many of us have, have experienced. I actually was first invested in this work after feeling paralyzed in my own family when two family members had food-related health conditions. One of them was celiac disease in my own husband, and the other one was breast cancer in my mom. And I felt as though my training had failed me in knowing how to help them use food as part of our treatment and healing process. So does it get better in residency training? I bet most of you would agree with me that it does not, and the data would support you in that. So there was one survey that actually looked at interns across medicine, surgery, and OB-GYN programs, and 71% of them reported insufficient nutrition education, and they actually tended to associate their preparation with how much nutrition education they got in medical school by week. So students who actually could recall and report training during medical school felt more prepared. And then specifically a study on internal medicine residency programs that asked both educators, the program leaders, and the residents found two things that nutrition education, either in medical school or during residency, and the personal fruit and vegetable intake of the residents was predictive of how often they counseled patients. So, so that's definitely food for thought. And the media continues to talk about this. They, they aren't particularly complimentary. They definitely are hitting on a core theme though, that our personal habits and behaviors have an influence about how we talk about this. And this piece in US News really hit the nail on the head that how much do doctors learn about nutrition? It may not be enough, but at least they don't think it's our fault. So I thought that was, that was at least nice and understanding of the fact that we don't have adequate nutrition education built in. So then we look at fellowship. This is GI fellows, both adult and pediatric. 90% of adult GI fellows say we need more nutrition education, and only a quarter of them are even comfortable with basic nutritional requirements for their patients. And then the, the graphic on the right was from a pediatric GI survey of the national organization, and they just said, hey, which of these topics do you either want CME or want more resources? And almost everything is greater than 50%. But look at what's 80, over 80% here, nutrition requirements in GI disease. A core aspect of GI practice, they need and want more training in. And then if we look at cardiology, who's also not doing much better, a survey that went out to cardiologists and fellows through national organizations found that 90% said they got nothing about nutrition and fellowship. 
60% got nothing in residency. And then in medical school, fortunately, almost 70% of them did get training. So 30% don't remember getting nutrition in medical school. So this trend shows us that medical school seems to be the sweet spot where people get the most nutrition education. But I told you how little that was. And in this case, cardiologists, only 8% felt that their training was adequate. But almost all of them thought that this was important. This should be part of their job. And then yet again, the theme comes back that personal consumption has a role here. And 20% of them consumed the, the minimal recommended amount of fruits and vegetables per day, which is five servings. So it, it drives back the point that if we really believe in something, we will do it ourselves. And then it's going to be more naturally weaved into the way we practice medicine. So I hope you agree with me. I'm quoting Crowley and colleagues in this recent systematic review of nutrition education in The Lancet that when we are poorly trained as a workforce, that's actually a structural contributor to diet-related disease, which is our number one risk factor for early death. So actually addressing nutrition education opportunity should be a core priority for all of us. So one way that we love doing that is through teaching kitchens. And you may have heard the phrase teaching kitchens or culinary medicine. We tend to use those interchangeably. They're very similar. A teaching kitchen is a little bit broader a concept because it can be applied anywhere. It can be at a library or in a elementary school or an undergraduate university. And culinary medicine is a bit more applicable to how we tie this into patient care. Uh, but this is, you know, this is a beautiful kitchen and it is not my kitchen, but it is a place where many people would love to come and train and learn. But we're going to also talk about how you don't have to have a beautiful kitchen to do this well. So defining culinary medicine was really first done in the literature just six years ago by John LaPuma, who's a physician chef. And he said, this is an evidence-based field, and that's key, blending the art of food and cooking with the science of medicine, and I would add nutrition science. And so a modern history in the United States was first, there was first a cooking elective for medical students in New York in 2003. And that's really the first time that this is reported as an educational intervention. And then in 2007, David Eisenberg at Harvard School of Public Health started a conference called Healthy Kitchens, Healthy Lives, which is a CME course focusing on bringing this connection for physicians and other healthcare practitioners. And then in 2013, Tulane University started the first medical school-based teaching kitchen, which is called the Goldring Center. And they then began to license culinary medicine curriculum. And we were actually one of the first medical schools to license that curriculum, which is now in over 60 medical schools, nursing schools, and residency programs. So you can see that this is something that students are beginning to talk about, ask about. It's actually become a recruitment conversation for us. And I love this particular picture in a US news article from about five years ago, because who do we see at the center here? It's a chef. And this is a conversation for physicians, a conversation for registered dietitians naturally, but it's also a conversation for culinary professionals and how we make nourishing food easier, faster, accessible, and taste good. So what exactly do we teach? This is my teaching kitchen, which is 
about 1975 era, but it does the job. It's our School of Health Professions Dietitian Program Kitchen. And we take our students there and we talk about how can you prepare food more efficiently? So there's a culinary teaching component. We talk about how the physiology of different diseases has a relationship to food. We talk about the microbiome. We talk about how different dietary patterns have been shown in the literature to impact prevention and treatment of disease. And then we bring in both nutrition and public health concepts. And then all of this is tied back in to case studies while they're eating the food that they prepare in class. So this is when my daughter was about six, um, this was her version of a culinary medicine class. And she said to me when, when she brought me up to show me this, she said, mommy, we're learning to eat more fruits and vegetables, but we're also gonna have a cupcake. And I loved that because that is what brings us back to the core theme that we're not eliminating or taking away any food from people that they find pleasure in. We're just trying to put pleasure eating in a healthy place and trying to emphasize making the foods that bring health to our bodies truly the center point. So culinary medicine can cover a variety of things from yes, the morbidity and mortality of chronic disease, which we've talked about quite a bit, but also how do we guide people who have food allergy and intolerance? How do we manage weight wellness, both on the obesity spectrum and also having a healthy relationship to food for people with disordered eating? How do we address anti-inflammation? This is increasingly taught in rheumatology that we've got to reduce inflammation through food. And there's an entire section of their website now dedicated to dietary pattern for arthritis. How do we teach people to have mindfulness in eating, not to be distracted, but to truly focus on being present in the process? So just to share a little bit of our outcomes, and unfortunately, the data needs to evolve. Most of what's in the literature right now is survey-based. So our first two cohorts of medical students, which was 64 students, we really wanted to look at, are they comfortable talking about this? And I boxed in green what was probably most profound. All students came in already believing that this conversation matters, but their baseline to post-test was markedly improved in having comfort around the discussion. They no longer felt paralyzed, like that medical student quote that I shared. They felt familiar with basic tenets of a Mediterranean dietary pattern, how you can apply that, and then they also knew how to partner with dietitians, which my dietitian partner in this, who co-teaches everything with me, was thrilled to see because many people don't know how to partner with our other health professional colleagues. So then we thought, okay, the culinary medicine elective is not something that everyone has access to. It's something that like every program who runs these in the country, we have struggle funding it. So what if we just integrate some nutrition education that's practical into a clerkship that's very brief and actually virtually delivered, and we built this out during the pandemic, and then we assessed how the students wrote about their dietary counseling encounters with patients. So they actually had to turn in counseling encounter notes, and we qualitatively assessed their notes. And we found that many of the things we want them to be doing, they were able to do based on assessment from their notes. So the three themes that came out in our qualitative review was that students consistently elicited drivers of current eating patterns and behaviors. This is something we all need to learn how to do. We need to know the barriers that our patients face. It's the same ones that you and I face. Limited time, convenience of processed foods, it's a lot more accessible for most people. Many of us have habits that are hard to change, or we have certain preferences or cravings that we're facing. 
Next, we want people to individualize to each person. So it's not coming in with broad generalization, but really delivering advice that helps each individual patient adapt it to their lifestyle. So their work schedule, what they have access to, tying it back into their health history, and then also recommending strategies rooted in evidence, which is not radical change, but gradual change, and helping people make SMART goals so they can actually measure and follow their progress over time, and then tying it to their other health behaviors, because there is a tipping point where we start to change our health habits. It bleeds positively into other areas of our life. And then more recently, we actually completed a scoping review of culinary medicine programs specifically for U.S. medical students. And there are 12 programs that have published their outcomes, 34 programs that are listed in different databases, and everyone's doing it a little bit differently. There's not enough standardization in this early field. Variable numbers of learners, numbers of the level of training that they are, are the MS1s or the MS4s, how long they do this. Is this a one-day course? Is this over in a semester or an entire year? Who's teaching it? However, despite all these variabilities, each of these studies reported similar outcomes to what I showed you a minute ago, where students know how to apply nutrition knowledge much better with just a little bit of exposure. Funding remains a huge barrier for everyone and an area where I think when we when we assess the potential cost savings and return on investment, we really have to rethink how we should be funding programs that, that promote better nutrition education. So, you know, there's like the then and now, you've seen these across social media. Well, this was our pre-pandemic world where we're all in the kitchen freely all the time without masks. And then we had to completely pivot. How do you take a hands-on teaching kitchen class and put it on Zoom? Well, we did manage to successfully do this and we are not the only ones. It's been done all across the globe. And actually last week I was at the International Teaching Kitchen Research Conference and people were presenting their work on successful outcomes and that there's a lot to be gained from doing this virtually. You don't need a teaching kitchen. You just need an iPhone and a little arm that holds it up over your cutting board or allows you to, to be able to be engaged while cooking. And so some of the findings that we had in our virtual pivot is that you can immediately have more learners, whether it's students or patients, which is something we're also doing. You can lower the cost because you're no longer renting or paying for a space. You're no longer buying food for everyone. And you can actually have more collaboration with other health professionals. And we started to bring in more PA students and PT students, grad students, dietetic students, and we were able to cross collaborate with other medical schools in our area. And then I think this is important when the wellness conversation and burnout prevention conversations continue to be front and center, how do we engage people in a way that helps reduce loneliness and allows people to gather safely, especially when we have unpredictable flares and respiratory viruses? I know you guys are probably facing what we are. Our pediatric hospitals are completely full here already in October. So how do we take this back up to a bird's eye view? So I personally believe that teaching kitchens offer a, an opportunity to elevate education, research, patient care, and equity. So I've shared quite a bit about why this matters in education. We're going to end our time with me just briefly covering some of the ways that this can be applied in research settings. And then I also want you to, to be thinking about how you can apply this in patient care. Shared medical appointments in a teaching kitchen are a reimbursable medical service. And it's something that we are launching here in the coming six months. And then how do we do this 
in co-led partnerships with the community so that we deliver the kind of education that promotes equity and access to food and access to nourishing education. So in patient care, the literature has shown already that culinary medicine courses reduce blood pressure and improve cholesterol for people with diabetes, that if you actually bring parents and children together and they do cooking classes, it significantly reduces their long-term number of meals that they eat away from home. And then even just remote what's called culinary coaching, which can be done virtually, it improves people's self-efficacy for culinary skills and their confidence that they know what to do. Self-efficacy is important. Many people don't feel they have what it takes to be successful at this, and we have to give them skill sets and confidence in the kitchen if they're not used to preparing food for themselves. So one example is we're currently running a pragmatic trial of culinary medicine delivered virtually versus clinical nutrition delivered through routine nutrition appointments at our hospital system for patients who have uncontrolled diabetes. So this was funded by a local foundation that is really uh, values the collaboration between health systems and community organization partnerships. And so we have a community part, several community partners that are co-leading this with us. The population that we're focusing on is an underserved, mostly Spanish speaking population. And so we have a bilingual chef who runs everything in Spanish. He's also a registered dietitian. So he's the perfect person to be in the space communicating how do we make nourishing food delicious. And people have, have loved this experience so far. They teach one another, and that's part of the magic of being in a teaching kitchen. So another example of application takes it from a disease like diabetes to a more niche population. So I was approached a few years ago by one of our transplant nephrologists who said, I don't know how to help the patient population who comes in, they donate a kidney to a loved one. So they're a living kidney donor, and they have to meet certain health criteria, although the health criteria around obesity, there's no standard for this right now. It's, it's all over the place nationally and internationally. And then many of these people, after donating their kidney and maintaining their health criteria to donate, they sort of lose the habit changes that they made and they have trouble sticking to it. And this particular nephrologist felt like we're giving people uh, the same diseases that they donated a kidney for because we aren't supporting them in being successful. And so we sort of wrote a call to action about this within a specific space of kidney donation. And you can probably think about how this might apply to your patient population as well. And then how do we bring this back to the community? Right now, several faculty in our School of Public Health are actually studying what are the preferences of the way in which food is delivered to pantry clients. Instead of us telling them, this is how we're gonna give you your food, we say, hey, do you want to have client choice where you choose the items? Do you want us to create meal kits for you? Do you want meals that are already pre-prepared for part of your allotment of meals from the pantry? And looking at making sure that they have a voice and it's not just take whatever we give you, which has often been the way that we've approached charitable food organization. And then how do we integrate and study food access and health, utiliza health utilization? So we have some early data that people who are getting food from our crossroads, our main pantry partner, 
actually have fewer ER visits when they consistently pick up their food. So how do we reduce healthcare utilization by ensuring that people have sustainable access to quality food for the whole month? And then what I'm directly engaged in is studying the impact of shared medical appointments that are co-led by a community partner and housed in a community location where people are going to learn about how nutrition and cooking can improve their metabolic disease and their Medicare or Medicaid or private insurance is gonna be paying for it as an actual medical visit. So as we wrap up, I just want you to think about the term food as medicine for a moment, because you're probably gonna hear this. So as I told you a little bit about how we define the semantics of culinary medicine, the link of evidence-based medicine and nutrition to food, the art of food and cooking, and then teaching kitchens, which can be applied in a lot of different settings, but you'll also hear the phrase food is medicine. So this purple arrow, which I've added to this graphic, is where I think nutrition education and teaching kitchens have an opportunity to engage. So this pyramid, which was originally created by Food is Medicine Massachusetts and the Center for Health Law and Policy Innovation at Harvard, they basically say the prevention at the foundation of the pyramid is emergency food programming. Then we have to think about what's what else is prevention. It's the population level healthy food programs. How do we inspire people through nudges and food choice architecture to eat better? And then we sort of start getting into treatment when we're referring people for nutritious food, whether it's medically tailored groceries or medically tailored meals, which have been getting a lot of attention in the media since they're increasingly covered by CMS. However, those are high level interventions. And what we really wanna do is teach people to fish figuratively. How can they carry forward if possible, if it works for their life and they don't have a disability or a reason why they might need a more intensive intervention, how do we teach people to live out a more nourishing dietary pattern for their whole family and community? There's national momentum here. So if you're interested, please go Google the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition and Health, which took place just a few weeks ago. And I've starred the five pillars. So the White House has committed and also has asked the private sector to commit to making progress on every one of these, ideally solving pillar number one by 2030, which is a very bold and audacious goal, which is to end hunger by making it easier for everyone to access nourishing food. And then the second pillar here, which is really relevant to all of us, how do we integrate nutrition and health? How do we prioritize an understanding of how nutrition and nutrition security helps prevent and treat disease? How do we empower everyone to make and have access to healthier choices? That's really where the business sector comes in. But you might also ask how your hospital's food comes into that conversation. And then how do we make it easier for people to be physically active? That's an important adjunct to, to a healthier lifestyle. And then lastly, let's enhance nutrition and food security research. So there's more NIH funding available than ever before for nutrition and its intersection with disease, both in a precision nutrition context, which is more typical of NIH focus, but also in a public health population health context. So lasting, last thoughts that I have for you before we'll wrap up, and I'm happy to take questions and discuss this more, is we have to start at the most basic level of understanding where the people we care for are coming from. What are their barriers and, and resources? Some of them may not have struggled with access to food, but they have other barriers that's making it difficult for them to live a healthier life. How do we provide evidence-based 
food guidance so that we can drown out some of the noise. And you live in an area where I think there's even more non-evidence-based noise than what we face. And how do we ensure that people can tell the difference? We should be training our students and our residents to tell the difference between evidence-based and where we need to maintain humility. And then culinary medicine or teaching kitchens, I believe are a real opportunity for us to integrate community and equity promotion with health and nutrition. We can be interprofessional in this by engaging our dietetic colleagues and others, and we can do it virtually. You don't have to have a teaching kitchen to talk about these things in a food context. And then lastly, I really believe that the kitchen is a lab and that we should be thinking about the research and community application of food as medicine through kitchens, our own kitchens, our community kitchens, and beyond. And if you liked me on social media, feel free to come hang out with me. And this is my token picture of my children digging in the dirt because it's important that we teach kids where food comes from. We're about to plant some vegetables that's in this carry bag that you can put on your front porch. And there's many companies who are innovating around how can we make it easier for people to access food in creative ways if they don't have land. So that is all I have for you. Thanks so much for joining and I'm happy to take questions. Dr. Alvin, thank you so much for that talk. Um, we'll pause and, and let more questions come in from our audience. Um, but just incredibly impressive to see these cross-cutting domains of education, clinical care, and an eye toward equity and community engagement. So thank you. Um, I may lead us off with just a couple of questions. Um, I appreciate um, the idea of practical advice for our patients um, and your slides that focused on um, strong evidence for a diet generally in the domain of a Mediterranean diet. And my question is, um, is that specific name um, Mediterranean perhaps confusing or off-putting to patients? And do you use that name or do you have an alternative that you might suggest um, that maybe feels more accessible or culturally relevant to our patients? Yeah, we we do not typically use that in conversations with patients. It's it's very much a research term because it's been well-defined and it's been well-measured, and that's where the, a lot of the root of nutrition science comes from that literature. But I, I really start by understanding what my patients eat. So I think that one of the most powerful things we can do, especially if you have a longitudinal relationship with a patient or you have an intensive hospital-based relationship with a patient, that you can simply ask them to describe what they ate. It's best if you can do it the previous day or within the last day or two. You don't wanna ask people what they typically eat because they will tell you their best behavior and you might not get the information that you need. But I will say, if I'm in clinic with someone, tell me what you ate yesterday from the time you got up to the time you get to bed and you kind of prompt them, okay, what about drinks? What about snacks? And drive a little deeper. And then you pick one or two areas. And I start by asking them, is there something in there that you would like me to help you work on getting more of the things that will help with your health? And I'll give them a handout that just describes the core categories. I love talking about legumes. That's one of our least expensive foods, wonderful source of fiber, brings in uh, a lot of different cultural backgrounds, different types of legumes. I mean, every, almost every culture has a legume. And then how do we think about ways that are accessible for them to get fruits and vegetables is kind of my next big, big goal. But when you walk away from an appointment with your doctor, you shouldn't have, 
I need to eat healthier in your head. You should have, I'm going to start taking a small bag of walnuts and an apple for my snack so that I stop using the vending machine. Or for breakfast for my kids, I'm going to try to make homemade muffins that have have whole wheat flour or oat flour once a week so that we stop going to the drive-through at McDonald's. You know, that you kind of begin to have a really specific change, that SMART goal. And we have to think of ourselves as a coach, not as somebody who's telling them what to do. And, and so I just don't put labels on dietary pattern. I just call it, like, sometimes we call it the culinary medicine eating pattern in our program. Great, thanks so much. That's super helpful. Um, and I'm gonna draw from some comments and questions here from our virtual audience. Um, thinking about our residency program here and our teaching kitchen that we have available, as well as some faculty that are interested and committed to cooking, but without chef training, is that enough to get started? Or do we need a chef to help get us going on a resident teaching kitchen experience? Um, you do just not need a chef. <laughs> so I will just start to say that, and even with our patients, isn't that what makes it real? Like we're not fancy, we don't have chef training. We're, I always tell patient classes, I'm a regular cook and I burn things and I mess up and I sometimes get to stuff that, that my family doesn't wanna eat, which by the way, is a huge part of this conversation in low income communities because they can't afford to throw it out. And so people people often need specific increases in food support to be able to experiment with cooking because they can't risk making something that their family won't eat. And so that's an important thing to think about when we're weighing our circumstances versus the circumstances of some of our patients. But I would absolutely start the best way to begin would be for a couple of people to share a recipe that's meaningful to them and maybe bring some in the ingredients to make a few different recipes. We make several different things in our classes and stations and eat, everyone just shows up, cooks together, and people can share cases where they've had a conversation with a patient about food. It doesn't have to be formal. There is actually a free culinary medicine curriculum through the American College of Lifestyle Medicine that's downloadable that was written by Michelle Hauser, who's a physician chef at Stanford. It is very plant focused. I live in the beef belt, so we are intentionally not dogmatic about meat because we will lose everyone, uh, but we focus on uh, reducing animal foods. But I say go for it. You don't need special training. You just have to come together and figure it out as you go. Great, thanks so much. I'll interject a comment here. Um, I think that as internists, by the time patients get to us, it's rather late in the process, and this information would better be taught in our schools. We could then reinforce what they have already been taught. Any reflections on that comment, Dr. I, I could not agree more. Um, that's what I'm grateful to be MedPeds because I'm trying to push my pediatric colleagues to embrace this. Actually, internists have been the forefront of this movement because we see what happens in disease. Pediatricians have been late to the game because disease until recently has not been as much their problem to deal with. And that's not true anymore. Uh, we now have, you know, top cause of liver transplant is no longer biliary atresia. It's now fatty liver disease in children. And so they're beginning to see the effects of that. So one resource, which I will say is tailored to a population that is uh, that is South Texas, but there is a great website called Chef San, Chef SA, which stands for San Antonio.org. So Chef SA.org. 
And it is a group of people who have integrated nutrition into the San Antonio public schools. They actually teach culinary medicine through a train the trainer model. So they take registered dietitians, train the school PE teachers to deliver culinary medicine. Because you take an educator who knows how to teach kids, you give them the content and the curriculum and the resources. They teach an eight week culinary medicine program across all San Antonio ISD now in elementary school. And then it's on the cafeteria line. So they worked with school food and nutrition services to get these nourishing options on the cafeteria line. And then the recipe goes home with a handout to teach the parent. And sometimes they're even able to have funding to send a sack of groceries to make that recipe at home. So there's a lot of great work being done on how we integrate this in schools. Fundamentally, it takes a shift in where we're going to put resources because right now resources towards innovative, delicious food in schools is not prioritized. Thank you for so much um, passion and information about that. I want to respect that we're getting close to the top of the hour, so I'm going to give you two um, very specific um, practical questions here. Um, can you comment on healthy oils versus non-healthy oils? And do multivitamins help? So I'll start with the vitamins. Most people don't need a vitamin unless they have a specific deficiency or they're following a completely plant-based eating pattern. So when people are completely plant-based, they need vitamin B12. We need to be attentive to calcium and vitamin D, sometimes a few other things. So we should be helping people. Who, we should know what people eat to know whether or not they need vitamins, right? And the rest of us, if you eat a nourishing broad dietary pattern, you probably don't need a vitamin except for maybe vitamin D in the winter. <laughs> and then the second question, oils. So let's let's start by saying that a little bit of culturally appropriate fat is okay. So if someone's using ghee or a little bit of butter, we are not taking them down about that. So it's just that we don't want so much saturated fat in our diet from excessive animal product consumption from meat and dairy. And then for oils, I personally cook with mostly olive oil for lower heat cooking and avocado oil for higher heat cooking. There's still ongoing research about oils and I choose vegetable oils that are predominantly monounsaturated, including olive and, and avocado, because some of the polyunsaturated oils that are unsaturated are omega-6 predominant. And the, the data is not clear yet on whether or not they might be driving inflammation. So stay tuned, oil in moderation, it's okay to have a little butter too. <laughs> Great, and on that balanced note, I think we'll draw to a close. Um, Dr. Alban, thank you so much. And as always, we're happy to um, compile and share some of the resources with our audience. So please feel free to reach back out to us for more information. Thank you, Dr. Alban, and thank you to the Edelson family.